are listening to the Down the Wormhole podcast, exploring the strange and fascinating relationship between science and religion. This week, we are exploring how that relationship gets worked out in real life with one of the current Sinai and Synapses fellows. Sinai and Synapses is a two-year fellowship committed to elevating the discourse surrounding religion and science, and where the five of us first met. So, without further ado... Our guest today is an assistant professor of middle grades and secondary science education at Georgia Southern University. She specializes in science teacher education, evolution education research and outreach, and professional development. Her research centers on the intersections of science and society, specifically the acceptance and rejection of evolution in the southeastern United States and the impact of the conflict between religion and evolution on science literacy. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Amanda Glaze Krampus. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. I should note that for our listeners at home that today is October 2nd, 2020. I'm not sure which Wednesday this will air, probably sometime in about a month. But we have been trying to get ourselves together now since early August, I think. <laughs> And through a combination of just technical demons and, well, technological demons and technical problems with all of the crazy schedules of going back to school during a pandemic, we have finally worked it out that we can talk. So I feel like I have to say now that we are two months into the school year, um, how are you? (laughs) Still running full speed in every direction, it feels like. So it's at least slowed down enough that I could carve out this <laughs> carve out this time for you today. But uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's still just a ridiculously fast pace and, and kind of on the go constantly. So usually by this time of the year, things have slowed down. You kind of have that flow. Uh, there is no flow this year. It's It's just like a raging wildfire in every direction. <laughs> That's that's uh, what a lovely image. Um, are you <laughs> online, in person, both? All of the above. So I have online courses um, in the sciences and in graduate studies, and then I have face-to-face courses for science methods and in, in my university. So it's um, it's it's been an adjustment. It's a lot. Yeah, no kidding. Have you found any kind of rhythm? I have, um, you know, continuity and the way I've set things up, especially for my students, not just for myself, to have that repeating pattern gives them a little bit of comfort and routine in a time where everybody's routine is just completely, you know, tail over teacup, for lack of a better term. Tail over teacup. Um, <laughs> that's one. Okay, I'm, I'm, I'm from no, the South, so I'm full. I am full of lovely Southern colloquialisms. Um but yes, I mean, just having having that little bit of a flow where they know at certain times of the week and certain weeks, these things are coming up and expected and it helps me to organize as well. So, you know, there there is a flow. It's just rather than being in the happy, lazy river, it's like the raging rapids. So it's just everything at that once. Makes sense. And you're primarily teaching future teachers, right? Yes. So in some ways, you're modeling how to how to teach in the midst of crisis. Yes, it's called bend like a reed so you don't snap like a twig. Mm, see, I get that one. Yeah. Yes. 
Yeah. Well, and I will say um, that I think you are doing some of the most important work right now, that uh, teaching science teachers to help raise up another generation of people who uh, understand and appreciate science. If anything, this pandemic has shown us that Americans don't appreciate or understand or trust in science. And so on behalf of our future generations, uh, thank you. Well, thank you. You know, it's something that I really love and it's something that I'm extraordinarily passionate about to the point that I, I really take nerding out about it very seriously. But, <laughs> you know, like you said, this this last year has really been just kind of a shock and awe campaign just because, you know, you realize something's important. You realize there's a problem. You know, we look at things through the lens of evolution and whatnot. But with with just the absolute widespread, just just mass hysteria level responses that we're seeing in so many different directions relative to this virus situation, it made me realize even more how important it is on a scope that even even I didn't really understand beforehand. So this is something, as you say, that you are just so passionate about, but uh were you always? Uh, what led you into this field? Oh, it's it's been a very meandering path. I think I was always really into science, but I didn't really realize it. So it wasn't like a, ooh, I'm a scientist. But I grew up on a farm in rural Northeast Alabama and was always in the muck and the mud and catching frogs and climbing trees and, you know, doing all the things, right? So I've always been very much a naturalist. And being raised by very strong Southern women who were both also teachers, both elementary teachers, you know, they were all about, oh, ask questions, question everything, you know, explore. Um, I don't think they realized just how far they took that until I got mm. older. Um, but but it was just it was a very encouraging upbringing. And so they just kind of turned me loose to do my thing. Um, I never really thought I would get into teaching and I didn't expressly plan to go into the applied sciences. Um, I wanted to go to medical school. I wanted to be a surgeon, but I had a wreck that kind of put the kibosh on that. You know, nobody wants a shaky surgeon. Um, and then I thought, well, I'll go to law school. So I have undergrad degrees in poli sci and criminal justice. And at some point in that, I was like, you know, I'd love to help people before they need a lawyer. <laughs> um, <laughs> and so I did some uh, summer camps at the university where I graduated and they were tied into science. They were kids into nature camps and absolutely loved it. And I thought, you know, I could do this. And so I got a job as a classroom teacher and at the same time was getting my master's credentials as a teacher and just absolutely fell in love with it. So that that is the adjacent pathway to my education line. Um, but when it came time to choose what to teach, I decided on science instead of the history and things like that. And so I actually have training and hours in applied biology, physics, and chemistry in addition to my education credentials. So I was doing genetics, population genetics, um, research in little bitty teeny tiny fish, little type of minnows called tricolor shiners in the state of Alabama, and having some conversations with lab mates. And we started talking about evolution and how things are changing. And, 
you know, I just kind of as a side comment was like, yeah, I didn't even learn about that in high school. And I got the look like, yeah, what? <laughs> you know, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, back, back it up, back it up, slow down. What'd you just say? And I said, yeah, I didn't learn about it. You know, I was in honors classes in high school. I got to 10th grade biology and my teacher got to what would have been the unit on evolution and said, you know, in our book, the next unit is evolution, but we're not going to cover that because I don't believe in it. And so we skipped Public over school it. Or private? Public. Huh. A very well-known public school that had, you know, 26 varieties of AP offerings through various means. And, you know, it, it was a very uh, high quality school, too. So it was, you know, people say that and they're like, oh, I'm shocked. You know, how did that happen? But I think people don't realize that happens very frequently around the country, not just in the South. It happens very frequently in public schools, not just in private. In fact, in some cases, our private schools are doing a better job teaching it than our public schools. Not so, mine. <laughs> you know. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, it, it really depends. There's a ton of factors. But because of those conversations, as I continued through my education, I came, it came time for me to decide what I wanted to research. And I thought, you know, what a neat way to marry my love of the applied sciences training that I have and kind of also this social aspect of this experience that I had growing up. Um, and so I decided that's what I would do my dissertation on would be, okay, well, what, what are... What's going on with teachers when it comes to evolution? And that turned into an entire research agenda. Um, kind of a side part of that is I did grow up in a Southern Baptist ministry family. And so it's actually Southern Baptist on one side of my family. And then the other side is Methodist um, ministry, ministry, like as professional well. so ministry? Ministry, yes. So professional ministry and um, it's a little bit different in the context of um, being outside or inside of the Southern Baptist Association. So, you know, being professional ministry does not necessarily mean seminary sure. and things like that, as it does in some other denominations. But yes, I do have some that are seminarians uh, that were trained in seminary and then some that were not. Um, we were in very rural Northeast Alabama. So some of the communities were very, very small. But, um, but yeah, I remember coming home. So I, going back to that time in high school, I mean, my teacher said that and I was like, holy cow, what, what we're skipping something in the book. Mm. I mean, it's in the book, so it's gotta be legitimate. Right. And so I flipped through the chapter and I'm looking at it and I'm actively looking for what's upset her so much and I can't find it because what I'm seeing makes sense to me. I mean, it's logical as saying, okay, things change and you have all of these different things that are happening over time. And, you know, a lot of this, I'm thinking, well, I've kind of seen something like this, you know, different scale, but I've kind of seen this and, oh, this makes sense. So I go home to my family to have a conversation about what happened. And it was meltdown. I mean, it was, it was, um, you know, I, I try to explain to people that in the southeastern United States, for a lot of people, especially um, literalist evangelical Christians, the word evolution is as true of a taboo as something you would find in the dark ages that would have people painting their mm -hmm. doors. I mean, it is truly taboo. It's something that has tangible, physical um, horror 
attached to it. And so, you know, I'm asking these questions and it's not something you talk about. We don't discuss this. We don't bring it up. We don't ask questions. It is directly contradictory to our beliefs. Um, You will go to hell. And so, you know, that for me was the beginning of a very difficult journey, which I think pushed me more into the sciences, because in a lot of ways, it cut me off from my original communities in some ways, because now these people are like terrified for my soul, right? Um, But then it made me feel guilty for asking questions, which is how I was always raised, you know, so so it's kind of this weird uh, juxtaposition, you know, ask all the questions, but not that. Yeah. You know, um, I mean, it was to the point when my my grandmother, our matriarch, found out that I was uh, doing research in evolution and she wrote me a 13 page handwritten oh. letter about her concerns and fears. Um, and I mean, it was tear stained. I still have the letter. Because she she knew, she said that she would not see me in heaven. And so this is the person that probably out of all the people in the world I was closest to my whole life. I mean, she was everything to me. And, uh, and so it was one of those things that was really devastating. And I think that also, you know, how do I talk to her to help her understand? You know, she has this fear of this thing I'm studying. I, I'm still a person of faith. I'm still a Christian. I don't have this fear. How do I help them understand? And so that really became the framework of everything that I've done for the last decade mm. is how do you have conversations that bridge those gaps? Number one. Number two, how do I help people on the other side of that? My scientific peers who have this very you know, frequently have a very negative view of people of faith in terms of religious beliefs conflicting, or they have this perception of, well, if you don't accept it, you're, you're ignorant of it. You know, there, there's all these misconceptions on both sides of the aisle, right? And so it's like, how do I bridge gaps to have conversations with people of faith and let them know it is okay to be scientifically literate and a person of faith, Basically, you know, science is not out to disprove that God exists, you know, and then also for the people on the scientific aisle that, you know, there is so much more to people of faith having concerns about science than ignorance. And so if you approach things from a standpoint of you're ignorant, let me beat you with evidence until you get it, you're not going to get anywhere. If you walk in the door, you know, setting the woods on fire, you know, religion is dumb. We don't need religion. Science is, you know, you're not going to get anywhere, you know, and coming out of that community as a part of that community and having negotiated the conflict, right, within my family and with my own worldview as I was learning more about these things, you know, it has provided me a framework that I use in my research and conversations and talks to, kind of be that middle ground between these two extremes that you can be a person of faith and absolutely be scientifically minded that good science has nothing to do with whether or not you believe in God or don't believe in God or whether you're, you know, um, atheist or a Baptist or a Buddhist or whatever. Good science is good science, notwithstanding all of their things. 
But in line of that, regardless of where people come from, regardless of their culture, their beliefs, you know, their religiosity, their family, whatever it may be, everybody needs to be scientifically literate. And so that requires breaking down these brick walls that exist where people say, oh, scientists said that. No, we must distrust mm. it. Science is out to disprove God. And I've actually had people say that to me because of very loud platforms from people like Dawkins and Neil deGrasse Tyson, who are very openly anti-religious. Mm -hmm. um, and then even before that, you know, people feel like, well, science says that God doesn't exist. And science says that miracles aren't real. And I'm like, science by virtue of being science cannot explain anything with metaphysical or supernatural terms because those things are not testable in the physical realm. But a lot of people don't understand that. I mean, it really is that simple. If science could test for the presence of God, then God would be neither supernatural nor metaphysical, and it would be a moot point. And so science cannot prove or disprove the existence of God because it's outside of the realm of what science is as a defined field. But it fits the, the way of talking from the same general people who will use the phrase, the Bible tells us or the Bible teaches, when what they really mean right. is interpretations of the Bible say this, where the Bible doesn't speak because it's not alive in the sense of like right. has a brain. Um, but it serves as a uh, as a convenient boogeyman of sorts <laughs> that it's not mm -hmm. personal and it can speak. And so then we can blame it for mm -hmm. things and or it can stand as mm -hmm. the authority uh, in for God or ourselves or leaders or whatnot. Um, it's, oh, absolutely. it's a tough conversation to have to have, um, not to get too personal. Have you been able to find middle ground with any of your family over all this? I absolutely have. And that those have been really my defining moments among all the things that I've been able to do in my career thus far is the moment when my grandmother sent me another letter. And she actually said, you know, I originally was terrified about the things that you were doing and the things that you were exploring. But over years of talking with her and just sitting down and listening to her concerns and, you know, explaining to her my view of things, she, you know, before she died in 2015, she had told me, you know, that she realizes that the research I do and the work that I do is, in a sense, my testimony. And that the work that I do, in a way, in and of itself, is a type of ministry. And I had never really thought of it that way. But, you know, it, it really made sense. And, you know, I, I speak quite frequently with church groups as well as school groups and teachers and scientists and public groups. And, um, you know, I, I had a minister uh, with the Church of Canada recently tell me, you know, what, you, what you're doing really is a ministry. Your grandmother was right because you're creating a space that's opening the doors for people to not only be okay with science from a religious standpoint, but for people to be more open and welcoming of faith from a scientific standpoint, you know, without blending the two. It's not, you know, intelligent design. It's not anything like that, but it's just creating that mutual respect for different ways of knowing, because that's what it, that's what it amounts mm. to. 
Science and religion are different ways of knowing that help us make sense of the world around us, but they have different rules and different expectations. Hmm. And so to try to make one shoehorn into the other, you know, doesn't make sense. But understanding and appreciating the value that both can bring into an individual life or a society, you know. So what are the ways, some of the ways anyway, that in your experience, the two have informed each other? Well, you know, the the whole purpose to me of the human experience, or, or not necessarily the purpose, but we've always been driven to understand the world around us. We're curious by nature. And for me, you know, science comes in to better understand things that usually we explain by faith first. You know, we have our earliest explanations and our ways of making sense of the world around us. And then as technology has changed and as human understanding has changed, you know, the way that we look at things has also changed. But, you know, for me personally, I don't know, it's it's, sometimes it's kind of hard to talk about because it is so personal to me. But it's like, I can be a biologist and I can look at the inner workings of cells. I can look at the genetic codes. I can look at evolution as a process happening, you know, over these generations in bacteria or other living things that reproduce very quickly. And at the same time, as I'm thinking, wow, there is, this is so incredible. Here's all the processes. I know the ins and outs. I know the nuts and bolts. But at the same time, you to me, you can't look at that and not simultaneously be jaw-dropped at the fact that all living things have all of these mechanisms and all of these, you know, nth degree processes that have to go almost perfectly every single day in the trillions of cells that make up a, so, a single living thing. You know, how can that possibly be a coincidence? So to me, it's, you know, the, the science brings me understanding and my faith gives me a sense of awe. Yeah. Yeah. I, I can relate to that. <laughs> so is there anything about uh, your study of evolution in particular that has uh, given you any insights into God that has changed your faith in, in any profound ways? Looking at, you know, especially being able to look at things like human evolution and knowing that, you know, how, how we view things as a species is very anthropocentric. I mean, we see ourselves as the pinnacle of all things. Which we are. Right. Because, yeah, because we are the only. The best and <laughs> <laughs> the, the greatest and the most specialist Amen. ever. But... <laughs> <laughs> but at the same time, you know, being able to think about the fact that we know that at some point in recent history, there were other species very much like us. And, you know, we've thought, oh, caveman, ooh, ooh, uh, uh, you know, <laughs> but but then we look and see things like in, in the Neanderthal, you know, we see ritual burials, we see caring of the dead, we see these things that strongly parallel us as humans. And to me, the, the big question is, what does it mean to be human? And I think that's the thing that has really 
driven me in my faith and in my desire to understand is, you know, we do have this dominion and this connection, but we're not the only ones. And so it's, it's, to me, it's awe-inspiring and it, it has made me much more open in my thinking and my willingness to um, stop talking and listen, which I think is a very powerful thing we don't do nearly enough of. Um, that's, in fact, when people ask me, well, what's the advice you would give to a young science communicator or, you know, teachers? I'm like, shut up. <laughs> <laughs> shut up. Yeah, pull, pull out my pull out my fake, you know, shut up. <laughs> no, stop talking and listen. Because we want to be heard. We want, we want to have this impact. We're gung-ho. We're on fire. Whether it's your testimony as a person of faith, whether it's your content area as a science teacher, whether it's combating science denialism, we want people to listen to us. Hear me. Hear what I say. But we're not taking the time to stop and listen on the front end. And, you know, it's always that seek first to understand, then be understood. So, you know, I, I think that goes a long way. Yeah. I've seen us as a, as a nation starting to come around a bit more. Uh, and it might just be a generational thing to being less hostile towards uh, science, evolution, mm -hmm. especially. Um, and I come from a somewhat strict evangelical background. Do you see the trend lines going in that direction uh, overall in, in your work, or do you see it getting worse? Do you see it staying the same? It, it really depends. You know, there's a very recent study, um, kind of a evaluation by the National Center for Science Ed that talks about how we are making strides in evolution education. You know, we now have standards, and, and many states didn't even say the word evolution in the science standards until 2016 or mm. recently. So it's it's been that strongly opposed at the even the state level. You know, we still see a great deal of legislation coming through that's trying to impact what can and can't be taught in science classes. We see a lot of this um, under the guise of academic freedom, but it's really a way of kind of sidelining and getting alternative, what they call alternative theories, but they're not theories because they're not scientific, that kind of thing. But, you know, we are making progress because there's so many boots on the ground in so many places that are really trying to do things the right way, working with teachers, helping to support them, you know, having these conversations where it's no longer, or at least the goal anyway, is to make sure that people don't realize it, this is not a dichotomy. You're not either a person of faith or a scientific person. You know, that that, that dichotomy is false in and of itself. And really taking opportunities to talk to anybody and everybody. I mean, I'll have a conversation with anybody about it's like I'm knocking on doors. Have you heard the news about evolution? <laughs> you know, um, <laughs> but oh, uh, Darwin's like, witness. I know that's horrible. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But it's like coming from a background of faith. And now there's this collection of us that are people of various faith traditions and, and 
levels of intensity, I guess you would say, of religiosity from very devout, you know, to slightly more spiritual, if you'll call it that, you know, are out there having conversations and modeling this. And and I get so many thank yous. You know, I really needed to hear this. I've been troubling with this and I didn't know what to do and I wasn't sure and I felt this way. And, you know, I, I think there's a lot more voices in that middle ground now that are creating a space where it's okay to have this conversation in a way that is not controversial. It is not stepping on people's faith or culture. It's not an us versus them um, and it's not a, you know, teach the controversy or have a debate kind of thing. You know, it's a, hey, look, everything has its place and serves its purpose. This is not about, I tell people, if you go in with the idea that you have to win a fight with somebody that, oh, I'm going to make this person feel this way. You've already lost. And this is not a battle between science and religion. This is a war for science literacy. Mm. It's so much bigger than winning or overpowering someone in the moment of a debate, because that is not going to get them to consider your position, to listen, to open their heart and mind, to hear what you have to say. It's just not. And that's why for 30 some odd years, those Gallup polls on evolution haven't moved. So on a different note, let's say you're in your office and you're dusting your shelves and you accidentally summon a genie. And that genie grants you unlimited grants because it's a university genie. <laughs> what are you going to do with that? Oh, First wow. I would put scientists in every classroom paired with teachers. I would bring teachers for free PD to do field work and learn about the science from the scientists that are doing it. Um, I guess my ultimate thing is that science teachers need to stop looking at themselves as teachers, as passive givers of knowledge and start looking at themselves as scientists. And so a lot of the work that I do talks about the nature of science. I mean, it's it's not anything horribly complicated. It's most people have a misunderstanding of what science is, how it's done, you know, even people that have taken lots of science classes. And so just kind of getting people excited about the possibility and the wonder and the curiosity and and giving other people opportunities to get their hands dirty and explore and and gather the evidence themselves. That's the kind of thing that excites me um, much more so than just what can I do. Um, I'm very much a facilitator. I, I tell people, I said, my goal is to be a facilitator of magic in the lives of other people. So I, I'm a cheerleader. I'm a builder up of, you know, all the things I, I encourage and I want to provide opportunities for people to find their shine. Right. And so, you know, I, I would give unlimited grant funds to, to teachers so that they could have labs and they could do all the things because ultimately, you know, the easiest way to impact scientific literacy is to let kids do the science, mm. but we don't, we don't do that. You know, we're born curious. I didn't know I was a scientist. I use the scientific method all the time. Ooh, a frog. What does it feel like? I don't know. 
Go pick it up. <laughs> Jump in the creek. Grab the frog. You know, feel the frog. Lick the frog. Take the frog in the house and see what. I mean, not really. Take the frog in the house and see what happens. Show mom the frog. Mom screams. Frog is now loose in the house. You know, I mean, that's scientific process. It is. It is. So, I mean, we're we're inherently born curious, and then at some point in time, the need for all of this structure and standards standardization and so forth and so on. That's a soapbox for another day. Um, Beats the curiosity clean out of us. And so by middle school, so many students perceive science as hard and abstract and other, and they dislike it. And it's like science is literally all around you. It's everything. It is literally everything around you. And so for me, unlimited grants would be all about making our students and teachers back into scientists and just being curious and asking all those questions and and just messy, dirty, hands-on inquiry, minds-on learning. What did you call yourself? A facilitator of magic? Is that what you said? Yeah. Is that on your business yeah. card? Because it really needs to be. I will definitely put that a on facilitator there. of magic. That's but I mean, I, I mean, I am. That's that's my thing. I don't do things for people. I, my students will tell you I drive them crazy. I never tell them the right answers to mm. anything. They're like, "Are you going to tell me?" No. <laughs> and so they'll start. I had I had class on Monday, and one of my undergrads was like, "They they were doing a lab where they're purifying urine to make it drinkable." Okay, so this is a NASA engineering type thing, and I'm talking to them about how they can do this with their students in the classroom, but I make them do it. I make them have that experience. And so one of my girls said, so Doc Doc GC, I got a question. And then she pauses for a minute. She's like, never mind, I don't, because you're not going to answer it for me. (laughs) Because I'm like, well, what do you think? Well, why do you think that? Well, what could you do next? But but that's the thing. I want them to experience that. And I want them to have that aha moment. Because if you're giving out the information, you know, I tell them, I said, I'm not here to regurgitate answers like a baby, you know, like I'm feeding a baby penguin, just swallow, swallow, you know, (laughs) (laughs) you know, it's, it's about being able to think it's not about the right answer, you know, teaching people productive struggle, Productive struggle. you know, struggle, productive, yeah, productive struggle, you know, teaching people that failure is where all the best stuff comes from. If you get everything right all the time, you don't learn Mm. anything. Um, So as you can tell, I'm probably pretty much of a nut in the classroom, but apparently it it kicks in with some of my students and they appreciate it. I don't know. But but I do because I want them to be the driver. So I, I see my job as empowering others, helping them see the potential that they have that they may not be aware of, you know, being that ultimate cheerleader. So, yeah, a facilitator of yeah, magic. That's my definition of science is just being being wrong productively. Yeah, that, oh that's all gosh, it is. Yes. Right. Um, also, in that lab, uh, were, were they expected to then drink the water after they've purified it? Yes. And you see, I was really mean. I didn't tell them exactly what the sample was. So they were convinced that it was actual urine. They really were. Can you tell us? (laughs) What if they're listening? (laughs) I hope they are. (laughs) 
They got really excited just for a second. Well, then they, they should listen to the episode on disgust that came out a little while ago in which Ian talked about <laughs> going to, to NASA and drinking purified urine. And yes. It, well, that's the same. It's the E-class mm-hmm. concept, right? It's the environmental control and life support. And so that's exactly what we were talking about. Yeah. It was great. Just read Dune. It's not a big deal, you know? <laughs> yeah. Saves a lot of money. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so as much as I would love to hang out for, um, you know, the rest of the day, uh, this is much more enjoyable than what I have to do afterwards. Um, I need to wrap us up with the same question that I have asked all of the fellows. And that is, uh, what is one thing that you wish everyone knew about the world? And for you, I feel like I have to clarify what is one thing that you wish everyone knew about the world? Because it sounds like you've got a lot of things that you wish everyone knew. (laughs) That is not untrue. I don't know. I guess for me, it's that all people have value. And I know that's not really a scientific thing, but I feel like so many of the problems that we have with science, with politics, with pretty much anything could be mitigated if we just stop and look at every other person, regardless of all other things, and say, this person has value. And let that paint our thinking and our planning and our scientific testing and everything else with just this renewed sense of understanding of human worth. That's brilliant. Thank you for that. It's, it's very clear that that colors all the work that you're doing as well. That it does. A little, a little radical empathy goes a very long way. Radical empathy. I'm sorry that that has to radical be radical empathy. in this day and age. but well, well, to me, though, it is because you have to remember empathy is putting yourself into the feelings of others. And sometimes the feelings of others are so ugly and different from what you feel is in alignment with yourself, right? So sometimes it is a radical act to have empathy for others. Well, thank you. Thank you for leaving us with that note as well. That's a, that's a hopeful little note to end on. Um, and I, I just want to thank you for taking the past 40 minutes to hang out with me, to talk with us. Uh, thank you for your work in on behalf of the future life on earth we thank you for educating the educators that will lead the way um, and as well for your empathy and your love for all of god's good earth thank you so much this has been awesome and definitely anytime i might just take you up on that 